Was that good? Was that good? I don't know if there's uh, more, more uh, popsicles or not, but uh, if there are, we'll have them after, uh, after the service. So um, if you have your Bibles, let's get in the Word now. Uh, we'll make that nice, smooth transition from a greeting time with popsicles right into our teaching time. But uh, we're going to continue our journey in the book of Galatians today. Uh, it has been, I think, three weeks since we left off with verse 7 of chapter 4. So we'll pick up. And verse 8 to 20 today, I think this is week 9 in our Galatians series. And the series we've entitled it For Freedom. Freedom is the atmosphere of heaven. Freedom is the reality of heaven. Freedom is the work that Jesus has given to us. And so I love teaching through this, um, this book uh, because it just centers us in what Jesus came to give us. Um, today's message, uh, verses 8 to 20, I've entitled it, Love's Appeal. Um, love's Appeal. When there is an appeal based on love, there is passion. There is emotion. And you will see a lot of Paul's emotion today. His appeal connected to his love uh, for freedom for these uh, men and women, these families, these churches in Galatia. Um, uh, he, he gets emotional today, and we're going we're gonna to go on that journey uh, with him. Some context of the book, if this is maybe your first time with us uh, here at church, let me give you the, some context for the book of Galatians uh, in general. Um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. That is the title of the series. I want us to think about freedom in a couple of ways. Uh, the first way to think about freedom in Christ is this, that we have been freed from the demands, the requirements of the old covenant law. We have been freed from the demands of the law of Moses. And we have been freed to, it's a, it's a release freedom, freedom from, but it's also a freedom to. And the freedom to is to have our lives centered in Jesus Christ and that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That we are living in the Spirit and that we are centering our lives in Jesus. I could say it another way. That we are centering our lives in grace. That we want to be grace-centered people. Um, the uh, first core value of our church is that we would be gospel-centered or grace-centered. Uh, and I believe that is the heart of Paul to get churches to get us centered in the grace of Jesus. Why do I connect? Uh, we want to be centered in Jesus. We want to be centered in grace. And you've heard me say this before if you've been around our church uh, for any amount of time. Grace isn't a, it's not an idea. Uh, grace isn't a theology. Grace is a person and his name is Jesus the Christ. And he has come to set us free with his grace. John 1.14 says that from Christ. He is full of grace and truth. And we don't balance grace and truth. That if you want to tell the truth to someone about Jesus, you talk to them about his grace. And when you talk to someone about the grace of Jesus, you are telling them the truth. Two verses later, John 1:16, from the fullness of Christ we have all received. Tell me grace upon grace, which is our vision verse. That's why we are called two rivers, that phrase, grace upon grace. And so the context of the book is that we would be centered in the grace of Jesus. Here's the context of our passage uh, today. 
Uh, we read, uh, when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, we always want to understand the context in which it was written. Sentences are written within paragraphs, paragraphs within chapters, chapters, books. And so we, we want to be careful that we're not just taking things out of context uh, so that it says what we needed to say or what we wanted to say. We always want to come to the scripture uh, with an idea of what's the context in which this is written. So let me remind you of where we were three weeks ago when we unpacked the beginning verses of chapter 4. Uh, Paul was telling uh, all those believers in the churches in Galatia that they have been given a spirit of adoption. Uh, they have not been given a spirit of slavery to go back to being enslaved to the law, but that God had given them a spirit of adoption, that they could even, that we could even address God as Abba, this, this intimacy idea of thinking about our relationship with God through the lens of safety and belonging um, and um, a place where we are in a relationship that feels intimate and is intimate and we can cultivate a relationship with God through that lens. And so he had just finished talking with the Galatian churches about this. He had just told them that because you have been adopted into the family of God, you are an heir. You are an heir in the kingdom of God. You have all of the rights of an heir of God. Uh, now, with much emotion, as he moves into verse 8, with that idea, uh, with much emotion again, he will plea with them not to go back to slavery. Because it's true that you have been given a spirit of adoption, that you are in the family of God, that you have intimacy with God, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to thinking about your relationship with God through the lens of lists. Like, I love lists. Like, I love writing things down, and I'll literally put, like, a little box. And then when I get it done, I check it. I'm like, yes, I love checking the boxes. But in an environment of a relationship with God, we need to remove our mindset from this idea of checking boxes to appease God, to perform for God. And the more boxes I check, the more he accepts me, the more he loves me, the more he is intimate with me. In other words, uh, my intimacy with God is dependent upon how many boxes I check, right? And so that's, that's where the Galatian churches were going. They have been given a spirit of adoption, but they've gone back to checking boxes. And Paul will, he will uh, help them understand that that's the problem. And then he, because he loves them, he will plead with them to remain in the freedom that they have and the intimacy that they have in Christ. And so here's the outline. Let me turn this on. Here's the outline of our passage. Uh, sorry, guys. That's where we're going. So he will identify the problem again. This won't be a surprise to us. If you've been journeying with us in this series, Paul identifies their problem, which isn't about behaving, by the way. Paul is not identifying behavior problems in the churches in Galatia. He's identifying wrong belief. He is identifying for them uh, how they need to change their thinking because right believing about God and his grace and about freedom is what transforms our lives. So he'll identify the problem again and then he will plea with them to remain free in Christ. And so let's, let's start with the problem. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start with Galatians 4, uh, verses 8 to 11. And in the outline, this is the problem. We've heard this before in the book of Galatians. Here is Paul's concern for them. Understanding that they are free in Christ, they have been given a spirit of adoption, uh, but their thinking is changing away from that truth, and so he will address the problem 
this way. In verse 8, formerly, he tells them, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you or I'm afraid for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. In other words, that my time spent with you was wasted because you're turning away from what I have given you in the gospel. This is the problem. They are leaving their freedom in Christ. Here's the problem. A deflection from freedom. That's the problem. And I think that's the, an, an idea for us to understand in terms of the whole book. The, a problem is a, def, is a defection, a leaving freedom in Christ, intimacy with God, Abba, and going back to checking boxes, back to law, back to religion, back to traditions, back to believing that my behavior impacts my intimacy and a declaration of righteousness that God has given me in Christ. The Galatians, we see from uh, verse 8, Paul reminds them of who they were before he came. They were polytheistic Gentiles. Uh, polytheism, theism, theos is a Greek word for God. So polytheism means many gods. And so they were polytheistic pagan Gentiles before they became Christians. And Paul said... No, it's monotheism. It's one God, and his name is Jesus, the Messiah. And then he writes this disclaimer. He said they had moved away from gods, plural. They had moved away from gods to no God, singular. You guys see that in the text there in verse 8 and 9? It goes from, so he's talking about they went from polytheism to a monotheistic belief and that Jesus is the Lord. But then he writes this disclaimer that I want to unpack for a minute. He says, to know God, and he says, or rather are known by God. What does Paul mean by that disclaimer? You may have heard people say this before in their testimony. You've heard me um, talk about this disclaimer before as well. Where they'll share like, and then in that point in my life, I found God. Like I was looking for God and I found God um, what Paul is, I think, saying here, or rather known by God, is this. We don't find God. He's not playing hide and seek from us. God finds us. God, because of his grace, comes looking for us. God finds us in our lives. He's not playing hide and seek. God is not lost. We are lost, and he finds us. Amen? And then this is a biblical theology. This disclaimer are rather known by God. It's not just here in Galatians chapter 4. Let me give you some other just biblical theology around this. Uh, you guys will be able, some, some of you guys will be able to fill in the blanks of these verses. Really kind of well-known Bible verse, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Emphasis on God finding us. Would you guys agree with that? We can only love as we are empowered and enabled by God's sovereign grace, his initiative with us. We love because he first loved us. Ephesians 1, 4. 
that God chose us in him before the very foundation of the world. God is choosing his beloved before the, before the foundation of the world was said. God initiated with us. John 6, 65, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Hallelujah. For the sovereign pursuit grace of God. And so what Paul is saying here, or rather known by him, what he's saying here, he understands that it's only by God's initiation that any of us might know him. And it is all a work of grace. Salvation, rescue, redemption, restoration, all of that is a work of the sovereign grace of God who is the hound of heaven coming to find us in our lives so that we could know and be known by God himself. And what, what Paul is so dumbfounded by in this passage is that people, specifically in Galatians, the churches in Galatians, but I would say for us people, me, us, he's so dumbfounded that anyone would trade freedom in Christ for that which enslaves them again. Why would anyone trade freedom to go back, to go back to checking boxes and believing wrongly that we earn God's favor, love, acceptance, salvation? And why would anyone do that? He's dumbfounded by it. We see it in verse 9. He says, how is it that you are turning back to those? I'm reading out of the NIV translation. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? He's not pulling any punches. He's not being light and fluffy. He's like, he, he's like how? He's calling the law, the Mosaic law, weak and miserable principles. Which I think we should just like think about that for a second. We should consider that the Apostle Paul is referring to going back to the Old Covenant Mosaic Law, and he calls it weak and miserable principles. The ESV, the NASB, translates it weak and worthless principles. How do we know that Paul is talking about the Old Covenant Law when he says weak and miserable principles? Well, the entire book is about the Galatian church severing their relationship with the law of circumcision, which is connected to the Mosaic law. But even in the previous verses in verse 4, if you look with me in verses 3 to 5, in chapter 4, the same word for principles in verse 3 is the word that he uses in verse 9. And he says, so also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of this world. And he uses the same uh, juxtaposition in verse 9 when he says, How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? It's the same. He's, he's juxtaposing the same thing in verse 3 and in verse 9. And it's the same Greek word that he is using. Do you really wish to be enslaved Again, by the old covenant law. And again, what he is fighting for is the Galatian believers to be freed from, from the demands and the requirements of the old covenant law. I was um, reading, I read commentaries every week when I prepare to spend these time, this time together. And one of the commentators that I read about verse 9 said this about Paul's language regarding the old covenant law here. 
and I'm going to quote this commentator. He says, what he says, what Paul says in verse 9 may be the most radical statement he makes anywhere about the law. It may be the most radical statement that the Apostle Paul, uh, that he makes about the law because he calls the law weak and miserable principles. And I go, yeah, that's a pretty radical statement for sure. I might offer one other passage for your consideration uh, from Pauline uh, theology. And it would be from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul literally calls the Ten Commandments the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. I say that out loud, and some of you in this room are like, what the what? That's in the Bible? Yes, it is in the Bible that Paul calls the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant can be summarized, can be summarized by the Ten Commandments. He calls it weak and worthless principles in Galatians chapter 4. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he literally calls, specifically he calls the Ten Commandments letters written on stone. He's talking about Moses and Sinai. And he calls the Ten Commandments the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. If you don't believe me, I would encourage you to go home and maybe read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and see it for yourself. The point that I want to make to you is this. Paul is seeking to get their attention so that they will sever their relationship with the law and, and, and operate in the freedom that they have in Christ and the intimacy that God has given them because of a spirit of adoption. So here's the problem in the journey. Here's the problem in the journey of the Galatian believers. So do the timeline with me on this and thinking about their lives. They were polytheistic pagans. And then, then, then Paul comes to present the gospel to them and they become believers in Christ. So they move from polytheistic pagans to monotheistic Jesus followers. Are y'all with me right now? And then what Paul, the problem that Paul is pointing out is now they are adding Moses to Jesus. They are adding the old covenant with Jesus. And the radical um, teaching that Paul is giving in this passage is this. And what's revolutionary here for our understanding biblically is that Paul considers them moving back to Judaism. Jesus plus Moses. He considers that as no different than their previous polytheistic paganism you're going back why are you turning back and he puts those two things together um, he says this is my paraphrase it is weak and worthless to check boxes as we think about our relationship with Jesus it is weak and worthless to think that we can earn God's love and favor by merit and rules and traditions. So question that I want you to consider with me this morning. Here's a question for all of us. Do you think, when you think about your journey, do you think that church traditions, just culture, things, expectations, right? Church traditions. Do you think that those traditions and the context of relation is the tradition and the expectation of circumcision? That's, that's, the, that's the specific context of the book of Galatians. But I'm inviting you to think about your story for just a minute. 
Do you think that church tradition slash expectations can become more powerful in religion than the truth of God's liberating promises about your freedom in Christ? I, I believe so. I believe so. And I, I think if we had a, a moment or moments to talk about this together, um, those of us who wanted to could probably share some stories around church traditions and expectations, which is what I go, this is where church baggage comes from. This is where, like, when I'm working and counseling with people and we're unpacking some tanglement of a legalistic way of thinking about their relationship with God and I'm inviting them to think about a pure pure reality of new covenant grace and freedom. I'm helping them understand a spirit of adoption. I'm helping them under, understand that we, we can address God as Abba. There's just, there's an entanglement of stuff, religious stuff, and it's church baggage. I believe the answer to this question is yes. Jesus didn't say, think about John 10.10, 10. Jesus didn't say, I have come to give them religion and religion to the full. That is not what Jesus said. He said, I came to give them abundant life. Life, not abundant religion. The failure of religion, the failure of traditions, is that it makes it dependent on people to keep it. The beauty of the gospel the power of the gospel of Jesus, the power, the enablement, the empowerment of the gospel is that it doesn't make us dependent. It doesn't, the message isn't dependent upon us. It's wholly dependent upon Jesus who has finished the work and given it to us freely. And the only work, Jesus said this himself in John chapter 6, the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, tell us the works. And it's plural. They want to know the boxes. And the answer from Jesus to the disciples when they're thinking about what are all the traditions? What are all the requirements? What do we got to do? Tell us what to do because we're good at doing the stuff. And he says the only work, singular, is to, anyone know? Believe. The only work is to believe. Traditions get added. Expectations of what we do and how we do it get added. They get added. I got to do this. I get, and then that, the heavy yoke of law gets re Post. Here are the examples that Paul is using with the Galatians. In verse 10, he's talking about observing days and months and seasons and years. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Jewish festivals and Jewish traditions and Jewish expectations. Remember, the Judaizers' message to the churches in Galatia was adding circumcision to law to Jesus, Jesus plus Moses. And so they are, they are saying, yes, Jesus, but also Judaism in the new way is Jesus plus Judaism. And so they're observing all of these traditions, and Paul points it out. Uh, and that's the example that he's talking with them. And the fact that they're checking these boxes leads him to say this pretty amazing statement about his own ministry. It leads to his own fear for them that he wasted his time in Galatia. Why is Paul afraid for them? He's afraid because they are slipping from amazing and prosperous grace to weak and worthless principles. They are deflecting from freedom. We think of the opposite of weak and worthless, powerful and prosperous. 
They are trading the powerful reality of grace and the prosperous reality of grace for weak and worthless principles of the old covenant. And he's afraid for them. And I'll tell you, I'm going to have some, uh, just a moment of just like behind the curtain in the mind and heart of a pastor for a moment if I could. Because I read this passage and I go, oh, man, I get that. I, oh, the emotion's already coming. I get that. Paul had worked really hard there. He had risked his life there. He had given his heart and soul to these people. He had experienced a great deal of criticism from the Judaizers. It's heavy. It's hard. Like being a pastor isn't easy. Starting a church isn't easy. Landing in a place where you don't know anyone isn't easy. And you give your blood. And you give your sweat and you give your tears. You give everything you have to it. That's what Paul's saying. And I go, oh, man, I get that. I, f- I, feel, I feel that with him. Any pastor knows, any pastor knows the heartache that comes when people struggle in their life or when they just peace. When they just peace. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, leadership is lonely. Um, I'm grateful. I'm not, by the way, I'm not burned out. I'm coming back from vacation burned out. Like I'm fully alive in what God has called Lindsay and I, our staff, our leadership team, our partners, you, us together. I am fully alive in this. But I'm just, I'm just reading this and I'm like, oh, I get what Paul's saying there. I feel the emotion of his disappointment and his fear and even some of his frustration. Uh, that gives away to his emotional plea. And so I guess when we read these next verses, I just want you to not like, man, Paul's being so, man. Just know that this is an emotional plea. It is love's appeal to people that he dearly, dearly loves. And what, you're, what we're about to read is you're going to see and read his emotion ramp up. And he just said, I'm afraid for you. And if you ever want to experience somebody's emotions ramp up, talk to them when they're afraid. You know what I'm talking about? Man, when people are afraid, when there is fear, when there is anxiety, when there is stress, when, there is, when we're afraid, man, that, that is a, that, the, the emotion ramps up. And we're going to see the emotion of Paul ramp up. But it's ramping up because of love, because of love. These appeals are because of love. And so I want you to understand this. So here's the plea uh, for Paul. Uh, let's read these next verses. I would say this is the plea is love's appeal. Uh, And this will be where we land today. Verse 12, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. I'll explain that in just a minute. You have done me no wrong. That's important for me. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. That even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God. You welcomed me as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Verse 15, what has happened to all of your joy? Where did it go? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. How have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, he's speaking about the Judaizers who came up 
and said, you got to add the old covenant to Jesus. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. Verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed. I am perplexed by you. This is love's appeal, these verses, because Paul loves them. Um, there's a, a letter that's not very well known. Um, it's one of the last letters in all of the apostolic epistles, Philemon. And Paul writes to a brother in the faith, uh, Philemon, about a person named Onesimus. And Onesimus had made some big old mistakes with Philemon. And Paul literally writes this letter to bring reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. And this is something that he says to Philemon. Philemon 1.9, he says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. That's what I see Paul doing here to the churches. He's appealing to them. It's emotional, yes. It's passionate, yes. He's afraid for them, yes. But he's appealing to them because of love. And I'm going to kind of rapid fire the seven appeals that I see in these passages. Uh, the first one is this. Become like me because I became like you. Here's what he's saying. Um, I became, become like me by severing your relationship with the law of Moses. Like become like me by standing and, and being centered in the grace of Jesus. That, that's what he means. Free yourself from the law of Moses. Become like me. And then he says, for I became like you. I became like you Gentiles when I abandoned the law and I turned to Jesus in grace. The Gentiles never had the law to begin with. What's he saying? Stay centered in grace. That's what he's saying. Become like me for I became like you. The appeal, stay centered in grace. Appeal number two, you have done me no wrong. This is, this is relevant this is relevant for anyone that has given yourself fully to people. People are messy. People are broken. People are hard. People are wonderful. Should I go on? It's just people. People are people, right? And he says this to people who have created tension in his life. He's afraid for them. But he says this, you have done me no wrong. What I see here, Paul's not taking it personally. There's a ton of relevancy in this for me. He's not taking it personally. He's afraid for sure, but he's not taking their problem personally. And I would say, trust me, pastorally, this is hard to do. This is hard to do. But he understands that they aren't leaving him. They are leaving the true message of Jesus and his grace that Paul proclaimed to them in the beginning. Um, you have done me no wrong. And so I'm inviting you by love's appeal. This isn't about personal to me. This is about Jesus and his grace. First two appeals, stay centered in Jesus and his grace. Second appeal, stay centered in Jesus and his grace. Verse three, because of an illness, 
I first preached the gospel to you. I needed to do some digging on this. We don't know all the details, but Paul was uh, battling some illness. Uh, A lot of scholars believe that the whole reason that Paul ended up in Galatia to begin with was because of some kind of personal illness that he had in his life. And we don't know what that illness was, but that's why he landed there to begin with. And he says in the text that it was a trial to the people of Galatia. We don't know what the trial was. We just know he was really sick, and we know it was pretty intense because it was a trial for the churches in Galatia. But how did they treat him? It was a trial for them. But they were so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude that they treated him as if he were an angel. They treated him as if he were Christ Jesus himself. They literally had so much joy that he says that you would have been willing to give me your own eyes, which has led a lot of scholars to believe, and I I, I think this makes sense for me. I'm not saying this is what happened, but I think it makes sense for us to think. Probably there was some kind of something going on with Paul's eyes. That was the illness. That was the issue. And they literally were like, we'll give, we were so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude, we're going to give you our own eyes so you don't have to deal with this anymore. It makes sense. I think those dots connect, but we don't know for sure if that's, if that's the deal. So why is this an appeal? Why is Paul reminding, the, reminding them of this? Because he wants them to, to think, don't you remember? Don't you remember your joy? Don't you remember how thankful you were? Having them think back to their former, like the beginning of their friendship of love leads them um, to get centered in the joy of grace again. Every appeal is about grace. So he gets them centered back to their beginning. And then he says this in the fourth appeal, what happened? Where did your joy go? And he talks about zeal in these verses. And he places much of the blame on the Judaizers' zeal that was intensely nationalistic. Their zeal was connected to Israel and the law. But the central feature of Paul's zeal is for Jesus and his grace and his freedom. And so his love's appeal is, what happened to you? Where did your joy go? I want to stir up joy again. And like the heart of a pastor... He's wanting to rekindle their zeal for what is good and what is right and what is true. His only desire is to see Christ formed in them. That's the heart of a pastor. For people to know Christ, for people to have Christ formed in them, for there to be so much joy and gratitude that they would desire to make Christ known, to know Christ and to make Christ known. That's his heart. He He wants to see Christ formed in them so that their lives get transformed, not by checking boxes, but by living in the Spirit and having our lives centered in Jesus. He tells them in verse um, 16, I am telling you the truth. Another translation says, I am dealing truthfully with you. Love's appeal, I am telling you the truth. Have you ever heard this um, Spoken, I, I would say this is more Christianese. We think about telling the truth. Um, I want, you go to someone, you're like, I want to speak the truth in, what is it? Love. I'm going to speak the truth in love. Now, when somebody, if somebody comes to me and they go, hey, Jason, I, I need to speak the truth in love with you. My defenses go up right away. 
Why? Why is that? Because they're about to call me out on something. Somehow in Christianese, somehow in tradition, somehow in religion, this phrase, speak the truth in love, has been a way for people to call the sin out in someone else's life. Would you guys agree with that? Maybe that's been true in your life. That phrase, speak the truth in love, is in one place in the Bible. One place. So when Paul says, I'm speaking the truth to you, he's not talking about their behavior. He's talking about belief. It's in Ephesians 4.15. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but write this down. Go look at it later. Here's the context of Ephesians 4.15. Rather than the Ephesian church being easily deceived by what is false, it's about right believing. Rather than being deceived by what is false, we are to speak the truth of grace to one another with love so that people can be transformed. If you want to know what speaking the truth in love to people actually means biblically, remind people that they're forgiven. Remind people that Jesus is the God of all grace. Remind people that the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our advocate before the Father. Remind people that they are free in Christ. Tell people in love that they have been given a declaration of righteousness in Christ. Are y'all with me right now? That is what speaking the truth in love means. And Paul is speaking the truth in love here with them. With deep affection, he's saying, don't go the way of the old covenant law. It is not the way of Jesus. The old covenant has ended and the new covenant is the way of grace. And so see truth, see Jesus, see grace, see freedom. Last point of the morning, we'll close here. He says, my dear children, with deep affection, my dear children. Interesting. We see the apostle John use this phrase a lot in his letters. This is the only place in all of the letters of Paul. And the letters of Paul is the majority of the New Testament. This is the only place Paul uses the phrase, my dear children. I think that's significant to grab onto. His emotional plea is based on his love for them. It is love's appeal. He is laboring for them. Now, Paul, he never got, not, he never got married. And he's the dude, so he doesn't know the pain of childbirth. So let me just say that out there, ladies. I don't think you're welcome. I don't know the pain of childbirth, but I've been there six times, so I kind of have a little bit of an idea, right? But Paul, what Paul is, is, is connecting us to is this. It's painful, and he is laboring for the churches in Galatia, and he's willing to do it because he loves them, and he will do it again because he loves them this is an intense passage and it's intense because of love and it's all about freedom it's about right theology it's about right believing it's about paul fighting for the truth of the gospel and it's also about relationships his deep feelings for them he loves them and he only wants what's good for them and sometimes we have to, in love, help people see the truth so that they don't go back to the law again. And so I would say, worship team, you guys can come back. Let us believe, church family, what is true about our freedom in Christ. The gospel of grace is Jesus plus nothing. 
Let us be transformed. Let Christ be formed in us. Let us be transformed by love. Love, love and grace is really the only thing that can transform a life. The love of God, the grace of God, that really is the only thing powerful enough to literally transform our lives, transform our relationships, transform our marriages, transform our neighborhoods, transform our cities, transform the world. Do you want to grab onto your power to do it right? Or do you want to be a conduit of God's power to you and through you? What we want, what we need is God's power. Amen? To us and through us. Let us not be afraid to labor. Let us not be afraid to labor and go through hard things for the transformation of others. Because we have been blessed to be a blessing. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the privilege to be together to feed on the living word of God. And I pray, Lord, that the beloved of God, sons and daughters, the spirit of freedom, a spirit of adoption, that it would fall fresh on us because of love. And if the intensity of the emotion would do anything, it would just cause us to wake up because of love, to see Christ formed in us, to walk and live in the way of Jesus, which is about abundant life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us worship in response.